Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got an excellent quarantine show for you today. Our guest leads the product management group at Research Affiliates. He contributes at the intersection of investment research and business strategy and is a permanent member of the Investment Committee and Product Management Committee. In addition, he oversees the content and quality of Research Affiliates publications, which bring the firm's insights to the broad investment community. Finally, he works with investors and partners firms around the world to ensure that Research Affiliates products and insights are accessible globally. In today's episode, we discuss what's currently going on in the world around us and how rapidly things are changing. We cover the idea of now casting versus forecasting. We talk about research affiliate stance on valuations, emerging markets looking attractive, and having discipline when it comes to analyzing data to form a sensible guide to forward-looking expectations. We get into factor investing, value investing zone performance, and the behavioral struggle investors have with it all. As we wind down, we chat ESG investing, and here it can to take on the industry's approach and helping investors prepare for retirement. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal by deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with research affiliates, Jonathan Trussard. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You're here from where? Remote headquarters in what part of the world? Newport Beach. I'm in my bunker. Okay, nice. Not too far away, up in Manhattan Beach. Well, you went to school right down the road. You were a UCLA guy, right? I did. And before that, I, I went to Santa Monica Community College. I'm a proud product of the uh, community college system. Awesome. I'm a public school guy too, but ended up PhD as well. What'd you study? Were you an econ guy? My PhD is in economics. It's interesting, actually. I thought I'd be a pure economist. And then in my second year of grad school, I met a professor, Svi Bodhi, who was teaching at the, uh, the School of Management at BU, who as a matter of fact, became my father-in-law years later. What? That's a whole nother podcast. Amazing. Seriously, right? But in the meantime, we started talking very early on in the semester. And he said, you know, everything you like about economics, dealing with uncertainty and optimizing under uncertainty, that sort of thing, that's finance. So how about you focus on that? That's been an interesting path. All right. So you're now part of the Research Affiliates family. We've had a few of your coworkers on in past episodes. We'll we'll add them to the show links with Rob Arnott and Chris Brightman and Jason Zhu and, of course, Cam Harvey. A lot of really wonderful episodes. But we got a lot to talk about today. The world is changing pretty fast. You've put out a lot of wonderful publications over the years, and we'll talk about a lot of them. 
why don't you give us just a 10,000 foot overview of the way the world looks to you today? Sadly, we would probably be right around somewhere the Research Affiliates Conference right now that had to sadly get canceled. Give us a review of what the world looks like today. Yeah, no, totally. And to your point about the conference, it's interesting how quickly the world is changing. I'm part of the team that actually puts on this conference. And three weeks ago, we were struggling with whether to hold the conference, not hold the conference. And it seemed like a big decision at the time. And of course, it's pretty quaint decision note relative to where we are today. So that's how quickly the world is changing. Yeah, well, I mean, look, in terms of what's going on, I think it's interesting, kind of setting aside the investment kind of principles for a minute. A lot of it is how do you actually process information and and what matters and what doesn't matter and and how do you prepare for something like this? We actually wrote recently about now casting. And it's interesting because this whole concept of it's really hard to not interpret the recent past as what's about to happen. And it's extraordinarily hard to actually look beyond the horizon. And what we're dealing with right now is basically this hurricane, right? It's kind of baked in. The models are telling you it's going to be hitting the shores in two days or whatever it is. But you look out the window and you're like, it's pretty sunny, right? In the face of that kind of cognitive dissonance, what you're seeing and and what the world is telling you is going to happen are very different things. How do you deal with it? You were kind of referencing my academic background. One of the things that I thought very early on as I was studying options and weirdly teaching myself bizarre versions of calculus to deal with that is it's not just dealing with the uncertainty that matters. It's dealing with the fact that uncertainty changes. And what you're worried about today may not be what you're worried about tomorrow. Kind of makes me think about what Howard Marks often kind of references to in terms of second order thinking and that sort of thing. So that's where we are today from a societal perspective. Explain a little bit. This was a great piece. What you guys mean by now casting. I don't know if a lot of people would be familiar with that phrase versus forecasting. Maybe just give a kind of little summary about some of the main ideas in that piece. Yeah. So the term now casting has a legitimate use and definition. If you think about economic prints, unemployment, that sort of thing, they come out on a particular frequency at particular dates. And in the meantime, in between those dates, you're kind of left in the dark. If you don't use other means of guessing what the numbers are going to be, that's what is legitimate now casting. Unfortunately, there is a whole other form of whether it's behavioral bias or honestly just kind of people hijacking the system that are just putting out opinions often predicated on what just happened yesterday and are projecting that as a proper prediction. And unfortunately, that's just not one helpful. It's noise. And in a lot of ways, it can be super detrimental to how you make decisions. It's one thing to be kind of now casting on Well, the example we used in the article, of course, again, it feels like a millennium ago now, was the trade war. People said, well, hey, Bob, you know, what's going on with capital markets and what's going to be moving markets tomorrow? And and of course, Bob, the talking head says, well, gee, trade war, that's been a big deal and it's going to be moving markets going forward. And you're like, "Okay, thanks, Bob. But how much information was in that statement? Really? I had a colleague at Ziff Brothers in New York who was a very aggressive proponent of what he called active reading. And he literally read anything, whether it was a, an analyst report or the Wall Street Journal with a Sharpie in his hand. And he would just Sharpie out anything that resembled non-fact, non-information and opinion, because his view was, generally speaking, you take all that opinion and it really doesn't add much to your analysis. And, and in a lot of ways, it's that kind of now casting noise. 
That's a great idea for a startup is we'll get a almost like a DVR that lets you just bleep out any CNBC, any Bloomberg where it's non-fact and, and, and condense it into about 30 minutes a day out of the 24 hours. But it's tough. I mean, if you have a day like today and who knows when the market closes in a couple hours, it's up, S&P is up 8% already today, which normally is like an entirely good year in one day and vice versa, of course, what's been going on on the other side. But Research Affiliates has been one of the groups that's been pretty, I don't know what adjective you want to use, logical or sober. Some people would say bearish, depending on what part of the world. Some people would say bullish, depending on the asset class. But you guys did another article, one at the end of the year and one more recently called like, oh my, what is this stuff worth? Maybe give us a little broad perspective on kind of how you guys think about coming up with market expectations or ideas and concepts have this sort of long-term view of what are things really worth at this point? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and again, the it's interesting you say that. I think there are a couple of things here in terms of how to think about that. First and foremost is derive to the best of your ability and form forecast. And we put them on our website and all the methodology is out in the open. So I encourage people to go and visit. It's it's free and, and readily available. So I'm not going to go through the methodology documents. I think that'll be uh, putting people to sleep, which honestly, maybe some people might need help sleeping these days. But if you think about it, we use the CAPE ratio, the Schiller cyclically adjusted PE ratio as a leading kind of valuation metric. And it's interesting as you think about it. People were complaining a couple of years ago about the fact that the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio uses 10 years worth of earnings. And they were saying, well, we still have the prints from 2008 and 2009 in there. And these were abnormal years and they're not going to happen again. And as a result of that, a lot of people thought U.S. capital markets and equity markets in particular were probably cheaper than we thought. And it's this whole thing where if you have the discipline of not ignoring the data, of not thinking that what's happened before is impossible to happen again in the future, then you have a sensible guide. It's not going to be a perfect guide, but it's going to be a sensible guide to actually have forward-looking expectations. And in a lot of ways, this whole, it won't happen again, the world is different, philosophy is what fails us as investors. Beyond that, I think for us, and again, we've talked about it, particularly in this Oh My piece that came out, I guess, about a month ago now, was this concept that particularly equity markets in the U.S. only had been pricing in the good news. They had been optimizing for the best of circumstances. And I think that's that's just not a reliable way to operate as you think about it. And again, I love the great writers in finance and I mentioned Howard Marks before, and, and I guess this time I'll mention Seth Klarman in terms of thinking about the margin of safety. It's just don't do that. Don't optimize for the best of circumstances. Allow for the in inevitable bad news to come out and impact prices. So that's interesting to me. What's also very interesting and, and an analogy, I think, that is worth emphasizing as we were thinking about this at the, the beginning of the year is be aware of the cracks under your feet and be extraordinary. You know, it's part of it is also being subtle about that analysis. We were talking about obviously valuations being pretty stretched. We were talking about a lot of corporates really getting into trouble area in terms of debt loads and so on and so forth. So you have to be aware of the cracks. I come from a risk management perspective, and my former boss always said, failure of risk management is failure of imagination. But what's interesting about that is don't be monotone about it. It might be cracks in the sidewalk, in which case you're probably okay. It might be cracks on thin ice, in which case it's going to be a very different reality. 
what you mentioned and the way I think about it is when you have these expensive markets, it's almost like they're more fragile in a way where for things to keep hitting on all cylinders, most of the things need to be almost perfect. And we had sort of almost that perfect storm of wonderful situation coming into 2020 as far as unemployment and low on inflation. And the catalyst is always obvious in retrospect. In this case, it was a global pandemic, but other times it's hard to see, but preparing for it. By the way, listeners, we'll add this to the show notes. Research Phillies has this awesome asset allocation interactive. We'll put the link in the show notes. You can go and pull up all sorts of different assets, see what Research Phillies expectations are. Bad news and the good news is the bad news is coming into the year, Research Phillies had pretty low expectations for things like US stocks and bonds, but other areas, Emerging markets, a little higher expectations, but the good news is as prices have come down, I imagine some of those expectations have gone up a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's worth noting on a couple fronts. One is, yes, we thought, based on the data and the evidence that we have, that emerging markets were cheap. Now they've gotten a little bit cheaper. But again, if you think about that, emerging markets were not priced for blue skies. And as a result of that, had more margin of safety going into this. The other part of it is... And I think we're discovering this through this episode is it's pretty clear that emerging markets have had a history of recovering from crisis. We seem to not always have the muscle memory to do so as much. So, yeah, I think emerging markets are very clearly a case of really attractive valuations and therefore attractive expected returns going forward and a reasonable belief that they have a good amount of muscle memory at this relative to us. That's one thing to note. And by the way, I think, again, there was an interesting article recently about, actually, I think it came out today. Jason Zweig was talking about this great cessation, which I think is a great description of what's going on. We had a great depression, a great recession, and now we're just kind of on hold. And the implications for human capital and kind of thinking about your portfolio and In a lot of ways, this is the best of time and this is the worst of times, because if you think about what's going on, human capital, your ability to earn an income has a certain amount of risk to it, a beta to it. Now, it probably isn't linear, which I think is part of the whiplash that a lot of people are experiencing. Most of the time, your salary just kind of shows up and you're okay. And of course, there are these kind of societal systemic events where waves of people find themselves unemployed or underemployed, you know, new graduates come online and the job market isn't the same. So if you think about what's going on, it's subtle, but for a lot of people that truly are credit constrained, this is a really challenging situation. I'm reminded of, again, when it was the good times, all of three seconds ago, people are saying, well, gee, the consumer is about two thirds of the U.S. economy. The consumer is doing great. We're going to be okay." Never mind the fact that this isn't an exact statistic, but I remember kind of reading all these kind of polls of people saying, I don't have four hundred dollars to cover the cost of repairing my car if it breaks down. That's going to be an issue here because this isn't about repairing a car. This is about sustaining a major blow. And so I have a great deal of sympathy for thinking about human capital and and what Jason is talking about in terms of people are going to need cash. And now I think it's particularly for financial advisors. I think this is a great opportunity to reinforce core principles that to the extent that one can build a bit of a safety net for yourself, to the extent that you're sensitive to these realities. Don't overinvest in risky assets, in particular equities, if your human capital has has an equity component to it, which most of us, unless we have some form of, you know, tenured position 
it's going to go up and down. So it's going to be really hard for some people. But I think what you're going to find is, on the other hand, the bleak forecasts that we had, as you said, for U.S. stock markets and other such highly valued markets going into this, hey, maybe this is an opportunity to actually get decent, at least more likely decent returns going forward. So there might be a silver lining there for people that actually can have the discipline and honestly are in a position to take advantage of these prices. You hit on a couple of great topics, one of which the bear markets and crisis in emerging markets have been numerous and, and very large over the past 20 plus years, say 25 years, so we can include the ones in the late 90s. Any investor that's lived through those has the scars to remember, and there's a certain playbook. The U.S. has been through such a long period, a decade since the financial crisis, of somewhat pretty mellow times. A lot of the younger investors, and this is particularly, I think, instructive for people who just haven't been through it and also have a financial advisor, a young financial advisor, is all the theoretical are now becoming reality of experiencing things like, hey, is this really my risk tolerance? Can I really behave logically during times of stress where it's not just portfolio stress, but societal, emotional? If you're quarantining at home like we are, <laughs> family stress, spousal stress, all those at one time, it makes it tough. And so I think that's a good comment on how to think about it, particularly with the long term. One of the things you guys talk about quite a bit is value investing. And this has been something that research affiliates has talked a lot about over the years and, and has some pretty interesting opinions, but would love to just hear some general thoughts. You guys have put out some various papers that you've co-written over the years. Give us your broad perspective on value. Where does it stand today? Is there opportunity? Is it potentially misleading in a world of potentially uncertain future? Give us all your thoughts on the value well, I mean, there are a couple of things. Value is among, if you look at empirical data, value is probably the granddaddy of factors as people talk about those things now. Though, again, I think value has a long and distinguished history in investing because it's common sense that goes well earlier in history than when the factor conversation started. And honestly, it's one of those things where the data telling you that value is among the most robust investing return drivers you can come up with is encouraging. But the data will never tell you the whole story. Part of it, too, is you have to think about, does it logically make sense to you? And in my view, and obviously at research affiliates in general, the answer is obviously yes. In a world in which it doesn't matter what you're shopping for, whether it's a car or a sweater or a house or groceries, everybody's probably wired to think a lower price is a better deal. We live in a world where we get to financial markets and all that kind of obvious common sense goes out the window and people are chasing the most highly priced companies and the most expensive assets because they've done really well recently. And so it just kind of trips up your brain, right? So first and foremost, you just start with the fact that the data are supportive of value being the most robust factor that you can come up with, combine that with just the ironclad logic that buying relatively inexpensive assets is a good idea just as a matter of human experience, but more importantly, because the inverse of price is expected returns. And so high price, low expected returns, 
low price, higher expected returns. Now, clearly value has been underperforming for a period of time and we're clocking in 12 years plus at this point under extraordinary circumstances where basically, again, it's been nothing but this kind of chasing the hot ticket kind of reality. If you think about what's going on now, it's one of those reset moments. It's one of those times where people are saying, oh, gee, what am I holding and what is it actually worth? And that's part of the paper that Chris, Amy and I put out recently, this oh my piece, which is that's the way human psychology works. People talk about Minsky moments, right? Minsky, of course, being an economist who kind of noted that basically during the good times, people just kind of overextend and a lot of it having to do with financial leverage of one form or another. But the truth is we've also overextended in some ways through the economic channels. We've optimized supply chains and all of that, thinking that nothing bad could possibly happen. We're having a Minsky moment. People are waking up. They're realizing that, by the way, in certain cases, the stuff they're holding, there may not be a market for it. And we're clearly not there with capital markets. But I think about everything as an asset, whether it's your human capital or your house or anything like that. How many people are going to open houses this weekend? How many people are actually kind of holding job fairs? How many people are? And so through kind of the entire system, people are realizing they're holding those assets that they may not be able to trade. And this is increasingly being tested in capital markets, too. And so all of a sudden you say, well, I'd rather be holding an asset that's pretty inexpensive, has a, a pretty kind of robust and reliable stream of income going forward, not in the next three months, not in the next 12 months, in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years out, and take it from there. That's the premise of why, though we'll never know if today's the day where value begins to turn around, the data tell us that value grinds down in terms of underperformance. And at some point, the world wakes up and in the early stages of a rally, value stocks tend to do extraordinarily well. One of the expressions for that is, I don't love it, but it kind of tells you everything you need to know, is this concept of a rally of the trash. We had a quote, we last did this in 2008, where it was a reference to, I think, the Great Depression where Templeton, this was an idea of doing a Templeton where he bought every stock on the stock exchange trading below $5. So he didn't even use valuation. He just said, look, I'm going to buy all of them. Some of them will go to zero. Some of them will return to, but similar concept, low price in that world. Put on your academic or practitioner hat. I mean, this is a simple question, but so many people struggle with it, where in almost every other avenue of life, People get value, in my opinion. And when it comes to stocks, for some reason, it's just hard where when things are going down, it's scarier, it's emotional. They don't they don't see it as being an opportunity the same way they would see maybe a house next door getting put on discount or going to the store and seeing 30% off. What's the behavioral framing there that really you think people struggle with? You talk to a lot of institutions as well. I don't think a lot of institutions are any better, many of them, than some individuals or pros as well. Why do we struggle so much with this concept of value? First, and I think this is a universal struggle, as you said, institutional and, and household. And so it, this is not casting blame. This is just recognizing we're human beings and everybody's trying to figure this stuff out. I think first and foremost, I think one of the issues with capital markets is we're dealing in the abstract. We're not very good at dealing in the abstract. To your point, the house, you can see it, you can go in, you can walk through it. Hopefully the 
previous owners have removed the pictures in the frame so you can actually see yourself in the house. The point is there's a very kind of raw and human experience to it. When you look at stocks and bonds and financial assets, you don't have that. And so I think it's really important to start by saying, let's not think about it as a stock or a financial asset. Let's think about it as the business that it is. Let's think about it as what it truly is in the physical world, so to speak, as opposed to this kind of intellectual construct. Okay, so then you can actually start having a little bit of a calmer reaction to it. The other part is we're just not seeing the right numbers on the screen, on the statement, whether that's the statement you get in the mail as an individual or board packages, if you're an institution, we're seeing the past prints. We're not seeing a forward-looking expectation. We're not seeing things that are actually informative. And because our brain doesn't know what to do with that information, if it has a big fat red number printed, you kind of assume, well, gee, this thing's going down, get me out of here. Whereas if there was a, just a second column that just said, yeah, I mean, look, it's been, it's been rough, man. Let's not pretend. But the good news is this asset, if not permanently impaired, and I think to your point about the example you used earlier, you know, some of these companies will go bust and all, there's no question. But as an asset class, as a diversified portfolio, these are actually more attractive now than they were before. And we just never see the data. You asked me to look at it from the perspective of an academic, and there's a word for that. You kind of call it the numeraire, the unit of account. And the unit of account, it shouldn't be past returns. It should be forward-looking expectations. It's a little bit like if you're planning for retirement. Honestly, very clearly, the account balance in your 401k plan and IRA matters. But what matters possibly more than that is what you can turn that dollar value, that numeraire, right, U.S. dollars, into consumption units. And so we just have a really hard time because it's pretty abstract and because there is no kind of form of agreement. The past is the past and something's down 8.37%. That's what it is. Of course, the moment you start looking into the future, you have to have models and it creates uncertainty and discomfort. And as a result of that, we just don't look at the data we should be looking at. Yeah. I remember back to the my favorite bubble, which is the late 90s internet bubble. And I think it was Scott McNeely of Sun Microsystems had a great example where he was talking about his stock later and it was trading for, I don't know, seven, 10 times sales. And he walked through this example. He's like, are you serious, people? Like, what were you thinking? That means... Every single dollar of sales we have, you're paying for seven years worth of that. And that's, that doesn't even include us doing any R&D, any taxes, any expenses. Like At least like the concept of buying the cheap stuff is hard, but also equally as hard as avoiding the expensive, really exciting stuff too. Yeah. And again, like I think right now, I really sincerely believe that the market does oscillate between fear and greed. And of course, we're in a fear component, part of the distribution, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, again, it's in good times. Do you want to own the dogs? I mean, no, you want to own the stocks that have done really well, that are promising this bright future. And I think the example, I don't know how many cocktail parties you go to. I don't go to many. So I feel like the whole cocktail party example is a little overstretched. But generally speaking, it feels better to yourself and in social contexts to own the stuff that's done really well, period. Yeah. Part of it is probably wrapped up in this whole concept of money is an emotional, very private discussion for most. The concept of, I think there's a lot of 
other emotions wrapped up being shame and embarrassment or pride. Of course, Buffett and Munger always talk about fear and greed and the biggest one being envy. So people always want to project the winners and the good ones and forget about the ones that have done terrible. But often the ones that have done terrible get priced to a certain level that is attractive. You guys have done some of my favorite research on the planet that I cite a lot is this concept of as you're building strategies, the way that many equity indices with market cap weighting starting the 70s with Bogle and Wells Fargo, but even taking back to the 50s with the S&P, it is the market, but it's somewhat of a suboptimal exposure. And part of the reason you guys have described with a really great example is this concept of really the biggest of the big, the dogs, the global big dogs, I think, as you guys call them or something. The top like, dogs, yeah. Top dogs. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's such an insight that when you hear it, you can't unhear it, unlearn it, you know? And I think it's right. a really helpful construct to think about markets and, and capitalism and free markets in general, too. No, totally. And, and again, before we get to the top dogs, because I think that's just, as you said, kind of a eye-opener. But it's just, if you think about just generally speaking, market capitalization-weighted indices versus another way to look at it, which is fundamentally weighted indices, I think that kind of level sets in an important way. The construct of an index is a fantastic one. It allows you to have transparent, arguably low-cost ways to actually track asset classes. Fantastic. The problem, again, given the premise that we just discussed, which is basically behavioral biases, and generally speaking, the way in which market participants become enamored with the top performing stocks and, and eventually reality kind of sets in, is a capitalization-weighted index ends up owning more of the overpriced stocks and less of the underpriced stocks. And when mean reversion, which is just a physical force, so to speak, relative to the hopes and dreams of investors, when that sets in, of course, that creates basically a return drag. And generally speaking, if you look at really long stretches of data, the return drag is about 2% per annum relative to simple construct, which would be to basically say the same thing. Look, indices are great. We're going to own the economy as opposed to the market. And we're going to do it on the basic principle of weighing investments on the basis of your economic footprint in the economy at large. You do that, you actually end up creating a bit more discipline for yourself relative to market capitalization indices by basically concentrating against the hopes and dreams of Mr. Market, the average investor, whoever you want to kind of personalize it as. If something's gone up in value, fantastic. I love it. I'll take my gains and I'll trim my position. If something's gone down in value, great, better forward-looking type of bargain. And let me kind of lean into that position a little bit more. So people are like, yeah, that's, I get that. That's a pretty intuitive, but but kind of theoretical construct. And so what we did is we looked at the top dogs because, again, the most expensive companies end up hurting you in a very big way when they're also at the top of the charts, so to speak, when they're among the largest positions in a passive cap-weighted index. And every generation, it's almost without fail, every generation has them. Whether you're looking again at 1999 and it's going to be a bunch of tech companies, by the way, some of which turn out to be great businesses. They were just incredibly expensive for the business they were. 
going back further in time, look at 1989 and the fact that if you looked at a global index, basically every slot among the top dogs, among the largest companies by market capitalizations would have been a Japanese company. And again, now casting set in and people said Japan is going to take over the world from a kind of a corporation and, and markets perspective. And of course, that turned out not to be the case. It is almost invariably the case that you roll the clock out another 10 years and the vast majority of the chart topping companies, the largest companies in the world, just aren't there the next decade around. Sometimes it doesn't even take that long. And again, it doesn't mean that those are bad businesses, that it's just the prices were out of whack. And they turn, they tend to really, really hurt investors as those bubbles bursts, basically. And, and sometimes a bubble is kind of this market-wide type of bubble. And sometimes the bubbles are, are more contained to, let's just say, this overexcitement about tech companies, this overexcitement about Japanese companies, so on and so forth. By the way, beyond bubbles, the same construct happens on the other side of the spectrum with anti-bubbles, where there are these companies that are kind of untouchable. They're so horrific. And those can turn out to be pretty good investments. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned, I mean, putting the context a couple points. One, when you're talking about market cap, I think if you were to poll most investors, and this includes a fair amount of pros, they would assume, the base case assumption is most people would assume that the broad indices are, in fact, fundamentally weighted. When I talk to people and I say, how do you think the biggest indices are constructed and they're like by size and say sure and they would say what do you mean well you know the biggest by earnings and revenues and you're always like no 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 it's just stock price timeshares outstanding and i think that surprises a lot of people and we'll link to this in the show notes about some of the research you guys have mentioned but the magnitude of some of the underperformance depending on sector or country it goes from like three percentage points per year all the way up to almost 10 which is a huge drag and you could do oh, it it's enormous many other ways. But to me, that's once you understand that, it's such a fundamental shift in how to think about markets. And it's fun to go back and look at the top dogs from prior decades. We'll try to include it in the show note links too. And Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a lot of names that the older crowd of people listening will look back at with fondness and smile and say, I remember that stock, whether it's RCA or all the Panasonic and Kodak, all the companies that, um, in, in my generation, maybe the, the Cisco's and Sun Microsystems that are still around, but not the best performers. No, it's really, to your point, and this is really kind of funny. Again, I'm kind of a recovering academic in a lot of ways. And it's incredible how we talk ourselves into these, we twist ourselves into pretzels when it comes to concepts, when kind of the common sense tells you like, why are you using market cap again? That was never, and then you're like, well, then you get into these kind of theological debates as to the heresy of not using market cap. And you're like, but what about just common sense? Yeah, yeah. that's a better branding. I, I'm going to name some of my indices, the common sense indexes. Maybe, maybe that's a better <laughs> marketing angle. You guys talk a lot about, too, for being a quasi-quant shop that does a lot of historical research. You're nice because you talk about practical implementation, too. And you guys did a piece on thinking about how people actually implement and allocate to equity managers. And you say, one, we're not necessarily that great at it historically. People love to chase performance. And then you come up with kind of three main questions 
to ask as you're thinking about allocating to people? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that paper or kind of walk us through what it's all about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think long shelf life principles will take you pretty far in a world that's inherently complex and where, you know, people are, you know, I hate to say it, but our industry is prone to rent seeking like every other industry that I can come up with. And I think complexity and just kind of smoke and mirrors is part of that rent seeking kind of kind of behavior. So, you know, I really do think that simple principles that allow you to stay on firm ground in the middle of this kind of storm of people telling you things and selling you things and all of that are really, really important. The principles, which I think I've highlighted, at least hinted at some of them in the past, earlier part of this conversation. First of all, is the strategy something that makes sense? Is it intellectually coherent and does the historical record bear it out? Let's just start with that. Again, give an army of professors and grad students and professionals laptops and infinite access to data, and they'll come up with some pretty crazy concepts. And in some cases, the concepts will actually bear out in the data just because it's a random pattern. But then you stop and you say, okay, so now I've got to control for that. So does it make sense? And so that combination of does it bear out in the data but more importantly than that, does it bear out in the data and does it make sense? It's got to be a joint test. And that's number one. And you kind of look at that and you think to yourself, well, there are probably a four or five type of investment styles or factors that you know have a pretty decent historical record, though you should haircut it, have a pretty solid intellectual construct behind them. And so, okay, let's just kind of accept those. Then you have to go back and say, great, so that makes sense, but where are we now? That's number two, right? Which is this valuation kind of filter, if you will, or or test. Every strategy, because again, it's just the nature of capital markets, every strategy is going to have times in the cycle where it's expensive and times where it's cheap. And by the way, it's true of even value, which is kind of built in to be cheap, but hey, cheap can be dirt cheap and cheap can be cheap, but kind of in line. So all of this has kind of cycles to it. So once you found strategies that made sense to you and that were kind of born out in the data, then you ask yourself, where are we now in terms of valuations? And look, I think the idea that valuations ought to be a huge driver of allocations is probably overdone. There are cases where things are so cheap that they're only priced for failure. And it's a pretty safe bet that it's gonna beat your expectations going forward. There are times when strategies are so expensive that they're only priced for success and there you should watch out. But otherwise, you know, of the three, four strategies that you said, yeah, those generally make sense to me, then allow valuations to gently kind of tilt your allocation over time. Because you also don't want to, one, presume that you have more information than you have, and two, get yourself into this kind of decision, kind of failure moment where, you know, you've been proven to be wrong because you will be proven to be wrong, and you just kind of freeze in place and just say, the hell with the whole thing. And then the last one is implementation. And and again, that's really important. One of the challenges, particularly with indices and passive investing, because I think most people are that stop and think, recognize that active strategies that are concentrated in a handful of names and probably are constrained 
in capacity. And, and you know that because if you're in the world of hedge funds, they'll say, no more. I can't manage more assets and I'm plenty rich, so I don't need more kind of thing. And or, well, OK, so I would need to put like a 51st position on the book. And honestly, my best ideas were the top 50. So the 51st position is just going to be kind of a crummy one. So in the active world, we all accept there are limits to the ability of, of managing assets. Somehow the world thinks that uh, passive investing is like this frictionless plane, right? Where you can put infinite amounts of money to work and, and nothing's going to give. And of course, that's not true. It's obviously the case that trading isn't a frictionless activity. Now you might have on your brokerage account, you might have commissions free trading, but at some point somewhere, someone's paying the bid ask type of concept. And you say, okay, so that's great, but I don't see it because these index funds, they seem to be hitting the index levels every day. So there is no slippage. And of course, that's the great magic trick of indices that one has to be aware of is the trading costs get baked into the index levels. And so it's very important to actually look at how the indices are built and constructed and, and traded as a result to ensure that that inevitable fact of life, that there will be a bid ask, that it is minimized and that your strategy doesn't kind of bake in this shadow underperformance. It's pretty clear that if you fundamentally wait, you retain a lot of the positive attributes of the more standard indices, which is you own more of the highly liquid stocks. If you don't optimize and therefore you don't have super high turnover in your strategies, that's great because there is no sure way to reduce transaction costs than to trade as little as possible. But it's all, of course, the world isn't simple. It, it's a trade-off because, of course, well, you know what doesn't trade is market cap indices. But then you're you're along for the ride with the ups and downs of market follies. So that's how to think about it in uh, three easy steps is basically, does your strategy make sense? And does the data show that there is good reasons for this? Where are the valuations? And have you thought about the implementation characteristics of your strategy. It's funny. <laughs> the common sense one is so obvious, but I spend a lot of time looking at certain products and I just shake my head and I'm like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of in my life. And it'll raise like $10 billion. So I say, what, what do I know? But also what you touched on, and I think this becomes often obvious in retrospect on actual index design is most people buy sort of the headline, hey, this sounds like a cool narrative, and rarely actually get down to the prospectus level or indices and, and how they calculate and what they do, and only become surprised after something bad happens. And then the last one was that the you guys on valuation have a great tool. Again, I love this tool, so I keep mentioning it, but where uh, Research Phillies talks about factors and shows kind of where we fall for that factor and its valuation relative to its own history. So whether it's, hey, this quality or low vol or actually value itself, where does it fall? And I think that's something that there's a lot of debate about. It's a great perspective. So really three wonderful things to consider. John, then we got limited time. I'm going to give you a buffet choice. All right, you ready? There's four topics. You can choose to talk about any of them. You've written about all of them. Which ones do you think are most timely or interesting? There's going to be commodities, bonds, ESG, or target date funds. 
which one or two is particularly on the front of your mind or most interesting right now? I'll pick ESG, though. They're all kind of interesting. And of course, my first love was talking about target date funds, which I, I did going back to my grad school days. So that would be a close second. Good. Let's talk about both. We'll squeeze them in. But on the ESG <laughs> side of things, you know, again, I think if you go back to the principles of intellectual honesty and understanding that investors are people and people have preferences that go beyond kind of narrow risk and returns. The ESG conversation gets really interesting because it is my sincere belief that people actually care about the nature of their investments and the way in which their behavior affects community at large, let's just say. And I'm a big believer in, in that because we're social creatures. We care about others. And with the exception of very few among us, how your behavior and how your decisions impact the greater welfare and all of that kind of just plays a role into how you think about things. So I think the ESG conversation is very real and we need to be able to help investors make decisions that are consistent with their preferences without falling victim of intellectual dishonesty. And I think that's the great challenge. As I said earlier, I think our industry is, again, full of people and people are people. And therefore, rent seeking is going to come into the equation. And, and if you think about what's I mean, it's incredible to me that investment products are launched on the basis of surveys and test groups. And basically, the conclusion is, if you want it, we'll build it with no real, you know, no real sense of like, is it good or bad for your health? So by the way, maybe we should start by putting ESG ratings on financial companies, so to speak. But all joking aside, can I tell you for sure that ESG investing is going to be a return driver? I can't. First of all, start with the fact that, and you know, you mentioned quality earlier. So let me draw a parallel between quality investing on which we wrote an article that actually was granted an award recently, which, which I think people might find really interesting, which is what is quality and quality and like value is one of these things where it can mean a thousand different things to a thousand different people, right? Is it a highly profitable company? Is it a company with little leverage up and down the line and ESG and before I move to ESG, the thing about quality investing is it becomes such a broad umbrella that it's almost like a meaningless umbrella. And so you have to actually kind of drill into it and say, what is it that makes economic sense? And how does that translate to, to investment returns? With ESG, you start with three letters that basically cover the waterfront and aren't a coherent set of constructs, environmental, social and governance. It's a lot of ground to cover. It turns out the governance bit as investors seems to have decent legs. But again, there are so many ways to look at governance. It's not a guarantee that the way a particular investment company might do governance would generate an excess return. Then you get into other kind of complicated constructs. And again, we're empirically minded. We want data. We need data to actually form a fully mature opinion. The E part is one of those where even if you gave me data going back 60 years, which tends to be what we like as empiricists, on the E characteristics of companies, the capital markets were just not paying attention to that 60 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. So all the data in the world will not tell you the answer. And I think that's really important. So as a result, you're left with basically this moment of great humility, which is, can we deliver investment strategies 
that are true to the preferences of investors. And I think that's really important. You know, along this journey on ESG, we've talked about, we've, I've learned words like greenwashing and pinkwashing and just kind of this window dressing, you know, do the bare minimum. And I think that's utterly unfair to the investors who care. So can you actually deliver on the specified preferences of your investors and do it in a way that is not detrimental to investment outcomes to the best of your knowledge? And I think the answer is yes. It's again, Bake in return drivers where you know them to be reliable. Use fundamental weightings as opposed to cap weighting. Well, that's going to give you an edge. Things like that. If you're going to be devising a uh, governance score, lean into parts of the G that you think have robust evidence of outperformance in the data you have. It turns out you could remove fossil fuel companies. Well, you know, we can talk about a variety of things around that, you know, engagement versus divestment and and all of that. But GMO did some interesting work a few years ago, which I think is worth noting here, where you can remove kind of any one sector of the S&P 500, and it's definitely going to give you tracking error. It's definitely going to be the case that year over year, you are either going to look really smart or really stupid. But over the long term, it actually doesn't make much of a difference. So you can do all those things. And again, like if you kind of get into the granular components of it, people talk about sin stocks and very quickly they say, well, gee, look at those sin stocks. They've outperformed. So surely if I remove the sin stocks, I'm going to be left in the ditch. And this is where some of the tools that we have at our disposal can be helpful. It turns out if you look at the sin stocks, they're not outperforming because they're sin stocks. It's not like some kind of magical thing where all of a sudden you're a sin stock and you're on fire. But a lot of these businesses are adjusting to the reality of being in unsavory lines of business and whatever. And they're running pretty conservative businesses. They're watching their expenses and they're highly profitable, highly disciplined businesses. Okay, so all of a sudden you say, well, that's something I can do something about because surely it isn't the case that only sin companies are the only companies in the universe that will be profitable and disciplined. Now, a lot of companies turn out to be not disciplined. That's the curse of being highly profitable. All of a sudden you're like, well, let's get on this empire building kind of deal. But you can find non-sin companies that have those characteristics. And as a result of that, you can kind of balance back into non-sin companies that are going to be profitable and, and conservative in their management. You can do all sorts of things that require a little bit of engineering to deliver investment strategies that are true to what investors want without basically being bad for their financial health. This is close to home because my high school's name was RJ Reynolds High School in North Carolina. So like the single <laughs> best performing industry of all time is probably right. tobacco companies. Pretty sure they would fail every single ESG category today. But that's a problem also with ESG too, is that depending on where you're from and your definitions, and the way you view the world, the ES and G can be a little different too. It's hard. It really is. And again, it goes back to this principle, right? Which is be respectful of your investors' preferences. Preferences are broader than risk and return and be responsive to what those investors actually care about. Yeah. We're going to save commodities, bonds, and target dates for our next conversation. But I do want to ask you, a lot of stuff we talked about today is stuff you guys have been writing about for the past decade. Love to follow you guys. What's got you curious today? What are you most excited about doing research on? Anything give us a peek behind the curtain? As you look on the horizon for the next 10 years, anything in particular that's on your brain or you're thinking about or interested in? A couple of things come to mind. And 
I'll use it as a pivot back to target date funds. I think we're doing a pretty subpar job as collective to help investors get ready for retirement. I just think we can do better. You know, a lot of it, again, is we've talked ourselves into kind of corners. It's making it harder for people like ourselves to kind of break through the noise and ultimately kind of lead with common sense. So the big challenges will reveal themselves. And I can't tell you what they will be in the next 10 years. But it's pretty clear that lifetime investing for households, whether it be through employer-sponsored plans or honestly in the cases where a financial advisor can be part of that solution set, uh, how do we help investors and the people that they turn to and trust? How do we help them make better decisions at reasonable prices so that ultimately everybody wins? I mean, this is, we're a mission-driven firm. We really do want to transform the investment industry for the better and for the benefit of investors. And and that's going to be our North Star. And we're just going to have to figure that out. So do you have any initial takeaways, prescriptions, diagnosis of the target date slash main issues versus solutions? Or is it something you guys are just kind of workshopping on right now? How do we fix this all? Target date funds, I'll give you the 30 second version, I think, you know, and we've written about that. Again, a lot of it is just testing common, accepted common wisdom, this concept that somehow having a bunch of equities early on and very little equities at the end of the journey, like somehow that's, that has to be the right answer. Does it? The data is suggestive that there are plenty of paths in which that's, you know, that's just a pretty, it's a little bit like if you were driving and you weren't allowing for, you know, kind of bumps in the road and just like, you're like, well, I'm, I've charted this course and that's the end of that conversation. It's just the inflexibility and the presumption, the glide path, uh, so to speak. The answer is well worth looking at. The other part of it too is I think we are generally speaking, the industry is not focused on the fact that ultimately this is about delivering academic talk coming your way, but units of consumption. This is not about dollars. This is about, can you actually afford food and shelter and you know all the other necessities of life decades into the future? So that's part of it. And on the, the other side of the equation, stepping away from target date funds, we're very actively looking at how to help financial advisors service their clients more effectively kind of build in, you know, some of these safeguards that we've talked about in terms of delegating decisions so that the behavioral biases don't come into play and derail things and basically help people stay the course, react to opportunities without overreacting to fear and greed. Well said. It's a tough problem. We struggle being a public fund manager, watching people behave poorly in public markets all the time and not being able to necessarily prevent that. And even if you're a financial advisor, the person could say, screw you, buddy, you're an idiot. I'm closing my account. It's hard. We struggle a lot with it. So if you find the solution, let me know because we'll certainly embrace it. We struggle with it all the time. Sounds good. We're all doing our best is my suspicion. Yeah. Jonathan, what's been your most memorable investment over your career? Good, bad, in between? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, God. When I finally got my PhD, which meant I was finally not poor, I bought a 1971 Z28 Camaro in honor of my mentor at UCLA, Earl Thompson, who only ever drove classic cars and in particular Camaros. It was a fantastic car. 
my brother-in-law, who's also an investment professional, kind of made fun of me because he thought it's an awful investment. And I said, yeah, yeah, but there's a lot of consumption value here. Never mind the fact that, by the way, as far as kind of flashy cars are concerned, a 71 Camaro is pretty cheap relative to what you see, particularly on the streets of Newport Beach, right? I bought it when we were still in Boston. We moved to New York City. It became pretty impractical. Then I had twins. A uh, 71 Camaro without seatbelts in the back didn't seem like a a particularly uh, good investment. So I sold it years ago. And I remember it fondly. I think the big lesson is when you buy something, you got to know why. I didn't view it as a financial asset only. I viewed it as a consumption good. And you got to be okay selling. Some of my happiest purchases, despite what uh, the normal financial advisor would say, have been boat. And uh, I used to have a 67 Land Cruiser. The same thing when my young one came along, didn't have any kid seats. The seats faced sideways, but I got it during a distressed sale. And I came this close to buying a 67 Camaro. Thing was beautiful as maroon at a Palm Spring auction. I went to one of those auctions, but I was way too scared <laughs> to place a bid. But I'm a quant and I'm also a cheap bastard. So the prospect of me raising a paddle and getting caught in an emotional bidding war sat on my hands. I was too scared. So almost was a Camaro owner, but ended up with a Land Cruiser instead. John, people want to follow you, all your readings, all that's going on. Where's the best places? Go to researchaffiliates.com, sign up for our newsletter. Easy. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.